Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 4-3, Beautifying the Afflicted. What does it mean to be blessed? And what kind of poverty was Jesus talking about? Steve addresses these questions and more as he teaches on the first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's start by reading the Beatitudes. That's uh, uh, Matthew's version, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5, starting at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the um, uh, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Just a real quick review of some of the points from last week. For me, the Sermon on the Mount is largely an invitation uh, from Jesus to reorder our lives. Uh, radically reorder them, our, our values, our vision, our habits, to center our lives in the depths of Christ. For me, the sermon is about this invitation to move from externals to an internal life that is wholeheartedly turned toward the triune God. Jesus is inviting us into his life, the life of the kingdom of the heavens. No matter who you read, which theologian, which commentary, they will all say that the Sermon on the Mount is, um, is significantly about the ethics of the kingdom, the way that the kingdom works. So it is not only the what of ethics, but it's also the how and the why that come from this revelation of a whole different life source. My, my hope, my prayer is that as we look through these Beatitudes and we go deeper, certainly deeper than I've ever gone before, um, we're going to see this invitation from the Lord to call us into a new place of intimacy with Him. The sermon presents life at multiple levels. It impacts our actions and our words. Uh, it invites us to, to use Paul's term, to live by the Spirit. At the heart of these ethics uh, is that the sermon presents a Christian counterculture. In fact, that's the biggest point I hope that you got last week, that, that if we are really going to embrace, if we're really going to believe not just who Jesus is, but what he said, he's going to lead us into a whole new way of doing life, both individually and corporately. Um, the last book that I wrote is called The First Church Restored. And um, I, I, in that book, Besides talking about how we live corporately, I pointed out the statistical reality of how the 21st century church has lost this countercultural life. Uh, if you want, you can look at that book, First Church Restored, and I'm not going to take time. Uh, the statistics are not encouraging. And yet, at the same time, it does give us the opportunity to respond to what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 4, 17, repent, metanoia, turn around, for the kingdom of God is here. So that's very much what the Beatitudes are about. We talked about uh, really what that word Beatitude means, uh, and it means blessings, uh, to be blissful. One great translation says, how blissful are the poor in spirit. Uh, it can mean favored. I, I, I was sharing with somebody yesterday, the one word that sometimes shows up that I don't think is helpful is happy. The, it, the depth of meaning goes so far beyond that. The problem is, as is so often the case, there's no single English word that conveys the full meaning um, of the, uh, of the uh, Greek word. Um, you know, the way we got blessed is simply when they were writing the King James Version in the early 17th century, they had to agree on one word to try to convey a broad meaning. And, and blessed is a good word. Uh, it meant something that is consecrated to God. Now, I'm near the end of this intro, but the, the, uh, the actual word in the Greek is uh, makarios, and it, it, it does mean blessing. 
but it came to mean more than blissfulness. Uh, it came to mean in the early church sharing in the very life of God with with another meaning of of ultimate joy. There was no higher gift than to be blessed. Now, in the Beatitudes, this blessing is extended to us. It means to participate in the community of the Trinity, the triune God. I've taught on this before, perichoresis. It means sharing in his life, and that is blessedness. Uh, the blessed of the Beatitudes are, it's interesting, they're not pointed toward the future because they declare blessed are, blessed right now. They're not about Jesus telling them to hang in there. Uh, he's declaring to them that in spite of how the world sees them and weighs them down, they're blessed right now. Now, I believe we have to be very careful uh, as moderns <laughs> that we don't see the Beatitudes as a method, an eight-step method for becoming better disciples. And I think it's because culturally we are incredibly goal-oriented in a lot more ways than we even realize. The Beatitudes are not something to attain to. Uh, they're certainly not uh, about knowing more about God. I think the Beatitudes at their heart are about possessing Him within ourselves. One of the things I said last week that I'd like you to think of as we go through the Beatitudes, if you look at those eight Beatitudes, they're like an incredibly condensed biography of Jesus, of who Jesus really is. And, and this Jesus, he says, I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. He says in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is within you. One of the last things we talked about this intro has gone longer than I realized, but we'll be drawing again tonight from some of the patristic, some of the early church fathers. But uh, one of them I like very much, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, he, he saw the soul of man, your soul, my soul, as being created in the image of God as a mirror that reflects him. Uh, I think Paul alluded to that in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But, but, Gregory says, our souls became stained, uh, sullied by sin, and they no longer display God's image. They're, they no longer reflect who he really is. For Gregory, the Beatitudes are an invitation, a wooing, to invite us to respond to his spirit as he calls us up a ladder. It's interesting. Several of the early church fathers used the metaphor of a ladder for, uh, for the Beatitudes. And this journey upward and inward is about his spirit leading us into the reality of his kingdom. And it's about that image being cleared up progressively, restored so that we can reflect him. Now, there is in 10 minutes, an overview of what I talked about last week. So as I begin to get into this beatitude, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which I believe is, is the absolute nucleus. It's, it's the key. It's the, it's the linchpin for the whole Sermon on the Mount. I want to just make a few general comments before we go further in. Um, first of all, this beatitude is the foundation of all the beatitudes, in fact, all of the sermon. And many of the church fathers saw this as the first rung of the ladder. I said that a moment ago. Secondly, poverty of spirit is the beginning and the context of authentic discipleship. It's not optional. Or authentic discipleship. To follow Jesus means to go where he goes and how he goes there. Thirdly, this first beatitude immediately presents us with a paradox. I was telling Christina earlier that in, in studying pretty hard for, for a few days on this, on this particular beatitude, I'm so confronted with this truth intention, and I'll bring that up several times tonight, 
this paradox. I can't get away from the paradox found in blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. This truth intention that the poor are blessed, not because they're poor, but in the midst of their poverty. This we got to get this. This is not a how to get blessed, become poor, start to mourn, start to feel meek. It's in the midst of that. And fourthly, the poor in spirit are aware that neither money nor power will save them from suffering and death. Boy, are we aware from, of that right now. No matter what I achieve, no matter what I acquire, it will not save me. And in fact, if I ever acquired or achieved, I wouldn't be satisfied. As, as Rockefeller said once to a reporter uh, who said to him, Mr. Rockefeller, you're the richest man in the world. How much money does it take for a man to be satisfied? He said, oh, that's easy. Just a little bit more than he has. Uh, that's part of the, the fallen world that we're in. The poor in spirit um, are aware that they need God's help and mercy more than anything. And then fifthly, just as this introductory comment, therefore, uh, poverty of spirit frees me. Because if I don't have to acquire, if I don't have to achieve to be blessed, then poverty of spirit frees me, and it frees me from fear that I'm not going to get left behind, that I'm not going to miss out. It is fear that prevents me from abandoned love. First uh, John 4.18 right? We know perfect love casts out fear. Therefore, the truly poor in spirit are free from the things that lock others up. This beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is, is in the opposite direction of the way we feel, the way the world around us works. It, it, this is part of why it's challenged me afresh these last few days, because this beatitude confronts our ego self, the, the, the self that we always are trying to put forward or, or uh, uh, protect um, or gloss over. So it's in the opposite direction of that. But secondly, of course, this beatitude goes in the completely opposite direction of the culture of our society. So as we truly embrace this beatitude, it inevitably discomforts us. Uh, it's like Paul said, a thorn in my side. Um, if this beatitude does not unsettle us, we've not gotten past the safe distance of just spiritualizing it. And uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. So let's talk about blessed are, and I would agree with uh, a theologian, uh, Frederick Bruner, who translate this, he says, uh, blessings on, rather than blessed are. Blessings on communicates the threefold meaning of the word. First of all, it's a pronouncement. It conveys a blessing upon the recipient, and it effects what it announces. That's why I insist for us, the fathers, sons, and daughters are the ones who are given the grace, the anointing, the authority to release the Father's blessing. It's not just nice words. It's bringing a touch of heaven now. I've, I've taught on that before. So blessing, first of all, conveys blessing on the recipient. It affects what it announces. And in that way, there's kind of a future sense to the word. Secondly, blessings upon, blessings on is an exhortation, because that's there. There's an ethical exhortation to live a certain way. But the third connotation of that word is a congratulation. Uh, it's a, it's a congratulation to particular people in particular situations. Blessings on is a statement that intends to deliver something. We use that word so universally now. I noticed maybe it's just because now I live in America. I used to always hear from Oh, cashiers and, and clerks, I'd, I'd hear, have a nice day. Now I hear, have a blessed day. Well, that's a good thing. 
But if we understood the power of that, what that really means, how it conveys, how it exhorts, how it congratulates. Blessedness is a declaration of what God thinks about you and me. Uh, a favorite passage for years has been Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. And it begins with, you are blessed, regardless of your feelings, regardless of what the world around says. God's truth, what he says is, you are blessed. Now, notice in these Beatitudes, they are both uh, present and future. And uh, so as we read the Beatitudes, what we hear is for today. But it's also expressed in terms of, of the ultimate consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom has come, but is still coming. And this was very much the early church worldview. So that's blessing. I hope I'm not going too fast. When I'm in the living room, I get feedback from people, and it helps me set my pace. So we'll just see how we're doing. So this is an issue I've been thinking a lot about, and I've been challenged, and I want to maybe challenge all of us. The poor in spirit. Do we understand that uh, economically or spiritually? Um, this phrase, poor in spirit, by the way, this is the only place it's found in all of the New Testament. Luke's gospel, which came first and is the more social uh, of the gospels, the social evangelist, Luke, um, his Beatitudes, besides being a little bit shorter, uh, you'll find them in Luke 6. We'll read them in a minute. But um, they're, they're very physical. They're very tangible. Matthew's look more spiritual. Um, Luke has Jesus saying, blessed are the hungry. And Matthew says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Luke's Beatitudes single out the profoundly poor, the hungry, the weeping. Let me just read you uh, Luke's Beatitudes. And I'm reading from Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You hear the difference? Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. I want to say this. We need both sets of Beatitudes if we're going to capture the fullness of Jesus' meaning in these blessings. Now, some people say that uh, Matthew and Luke were recording two different sessions, two different times. Um, Others say, no, both are a collection of his sayings, but Luke was emphasizing one thing and Matthew another. But regardless, what I'm saying to you today is we need both or we're going to get off track. And let me unwrap that a little bit. We need to read this first version, which is Luke's, uh, in order to properly understand Matthew's Beatitudes. And, you know, we can make a mistake from Luke, that Jesus was saying, oh, it's wonderful to be poor, to be hungry, to be weeping. If that was the case, then it would be wrong to ever try to help someone in their poverty. What I do, and our whole team, and many of you do with Impact Nations, that would be wrong, right? Because if they're blessed because they're poor and they're hungry, um, then we'd be taking their blessing. And that it can't mean that. So this is why we need Matthew, because he uses a different word. Those who are poor, poor, poor and feel crushed by it are the poor in spirit. One translation says, blessings on those who feel their poverty and so cry out. So here's what we got to do. On the one side, we can't just say, well, this is just economic. If you're poor, then you're blessed. But we also must not spiritualize the meaning beyond the text. You know, it's really, really common. I've heard it sitting in, in the pew. I remember a few years ago hearing it and just 
having to sit still. Because I heard this common interpretation, blessed are those who feel their spiritual need. As long as you feel needy, you're blessed. I.e., blessed are the rich, too, as long as they remain humble. This is not what the text says, okay? It's not what the text says. Parenthetically, uh, easier for a rich man, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Is not The eye of a needle was not a low gate in the wall in Jerusalem that they that if you stayed humble, you could be rich, but you could, that, that was a, a fable uh, 13 centuries later. No, Jesus says things that we are, have to confront. We can't slip around them. So he's not saying blessed are the rich too, as long as they remain humble. It's a misunderstanding. And by doing that, we're trying to find something good, something that God requires in being poor in spirit. Oh, he requires me to be humble. But they're called blessed by Jesus, not because of any merit, but in spite of their condition. The kingdom of the heavens has moved upon them and moved through them. This is grace. This is blessing. As we look at the pure, pure and boy, I'm having trouble with that tonight. As we look at the poor in spirit, we need to hold both the economic and social aspect and the spiritual aspect in tension and not fall off on either side. To see only the oppressed poor uh, moves us back to the error that I talked about last week that was in the early 20th century, that purely social gospel that we could change the world just through our commitment to being good. And that was shown to be completely erroneous. Exhibit A and B, World War I and II. But to be honest with you, uh, for us, as most of us are comfortable Westerners, we're always going to have a tendency to lean towards spiritualizing this beatitude. And there are both aspects. So let's talk about the economic poor. I'm going to open my window. We have a nice warm night here in Albuquerque. There we go. Here's a great quote from Dostoevsky. It's from Crime and Punishment, actually. Blessed are those who have nothing to lock up. Isn't that great? From the beginning, Jesus puts himself on the side of the poor and the wretched. Many of you have traveled with me, and I always say when we go into a, a garbage dump or a really bad slum, I'll say, we're not taking Jesus to them. He's already there waiting for us. Matthew 25 tells us that. Jesus consistently puts himself on the side of the poor and the wretched. He announced good news to the poor. The word that Jesus in Matthew's account used here for poor was not the most common word. It was less common, and the one he used meant totally destitute, abjectly poor. These are the ones who are reduced to begging. It's as if he was saying, blessed are the beggars in spirit. Many of you know that one of my greatest spiritual heroes, and my first one, is St. Francis of Assisi. If you ever can go to Assisi, of course, none of us can now, but when the day comes, it's a remarkable experience. But let me give you a quote from St. Francis. Holy poverty destroys the desires of riches and avarice and the cares of this world. I just read a quote from Joseph Ratzinger, who is uh, Pope Benedict. He said, Francis's life offers us the most intensely lived illustration of this beatitude. His life was gripped in an utterly radical way by the promise of the first beatitude. I love studying church history. I love studying the Desert Fathers. I love, I just love it all. Just finished book, a long book on Martin Luther last night. It's, uh, you know, our, our, our spiritual heritage is incredibly rich. But there's something you'll notice if you start looking at the saints. All their lives were linked by poverty, both economic and spiritual. They all approach God in a state of destitution. The necessity of poverty does not produce 
blessedness in us, but a devout trust that is sustained through our poverty does. There is nothing blessed about being poor, but but the blessing is that he is with us. We experience profoundly his identification and his presence with us in the midst of poverty. The Magnificat, which is that great prophetic song that Mary sings uh, in the middle of Luke 1, I think it's 46 to 53, uh, my soul doth magnify the Lord. We often hear it and sing it and so forth before Christmas. But it's really interesting because verse 53 of this prophetic announcement is that he sends the rich away empty. Now, we may not like that, but this is what it says. He sends the rich away empty. Jesus clearly said it is harder for the rich to enter the kingdom to find the place of blessing that is there for the poor in spirit. Now, some of us are immediately thinking of of godly people who God's given them lots. And uh, I know them, and you know them, and I I'm trying to, again, we've got paradox. But for most of us, we want to be like that. We'd like to have more. We'd like to acquire more. We'd like to have more success. This cuts across that. And I think for godly, godly people who give freely to the poor uh, in the midst of their relative wealth, I think there is a, a great humility on them, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. There is a grace. But for us, by and large, we, we tend to ignore the reality of Jesus identifying with the poor and saying, I'm with you with your poverty. Last week, I talked to you about the all-new Impact Nation store, where you can buy apparel and accessories to help support our skills and business programs. Hopefully, you've had a chance to check out the store and pick up a few items for yourself or a loved one. I mentioned that 100% of those profits go to our skills and business programs, so I wanted to take a moment and tell you why that's so important to me. Here at Impact Nations, one of our core convictions is that the gospel of God's kingdom carries the power to transform lives. True, holistic transformation must include economic transformation. That's why we provide the help needed to move both individuals and communities into long-term sustainability, not dependence on any outside source. Honestly, our skills and business programs are what get me the most excited around here. I love hearing stories of people who have been rescued from desperate situations, acquired new skills and understanding, and then been released to go discover that they're able to provide for themselves and for their family. Last year, we helped start 15 new businesses in a Ugandan village called Kolonga. In fact, as a result of our efforts, the economy is doing so well in Kolonga that our partners are going to start a bank in order to support all of the families that are now generating an income and learning the importance of savings. Even cooler, this bank will actually be a for-profit business that will help our local partner, Hope and Care Ministries, to continue to bless the community. Now that is sustainability. So when you give to Impact Nation's skills and business programs, you are providing a hope and a future for the desperately poor. We are constantly amazed at how they flourish and thrive. If you'd like to learn more about our three-step process, visit impactnations.com skills, where you can give someone the opportunity to discover their ability to provide for their family. And now, back to the podcast. There's a word... A Greek word, uh, pardon me, a Hebrew word for the poor that uh, was then translated into Greek. But the original word is anawim. It's an Old Testament word describing the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized who remain faithful to God. I want to take a couple of minutes on this word because the Old Testament development of this word provides a foundation and a reference point for an awful lot of what Jesus taught. The word links what we're talking about. It links the economic and the spiritually poor, the material impoverished to recognize that God is their only hope. 
Isaiah used this word a lot. Let me give you a few examples. And he did it always to commend them for their dependency in the midst of their poverty. The last chapter of Isaiah 66, verse 2. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor, Anuim, and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 61.1, which Jesus quoted on his uh, inaugural sermon in Luke 4. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the Anuim, to those poor, those spiritually and materially poor. Uh, Isaiah 49.13, for the Lord has comforted his people. Psalm 149.4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people, for he will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation and will have compassion on his afflicted. <coughs> Pardon me. This Old Testament word for poor, Anuim's got, got three features to it that I'd like us to remember as we then move from the economic into the spiritually poor. Number one, the Anuim were the especially poor, and yet they trusted God. Uh, we, um, we often lose touch with the reality of life in first century Israel, where at least 60% of the people lived in very severe poverty. And um, it was, these were the Anawim, and these were the ones who trusted God in the midst of such widespread uh, economic difficulty. The second thing about the Anawim, they, they found their way to the temple as the meeting place. They gathered together, and this tells us something about their, their uh, natural affinity for community for mutual care and support. This is something I see uh, as I am in villages uh, all over the developing world. When I'm in a poor area, I'm always struck by how, how communal they are. They spend their time there. You, you see various adults watching out for the kids in the village. Um, and so this was a, a significant factor for the Anawim. Thirdly, they were longing for the coming of the Messiah because they knew he would finally bring justice. You know, in uh, Luke 2, when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, we see Simeon and Anna. These are classic examples of Anawim. I mentioned earlier Mary uh, in the Magnificat, that wonderful prophetic hymn, she was declaring the hope of the Anawim. Let me just read you a few verses here. Luke 1, 51 to 54. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. This is a powerful prophetic utterance. Um, and it leads us into this next shift of understanding the poor in spirit. We've looked at the economically poor. Now we want to look at the spiritually poor and the Anuim themselves. That term is a, an excellent bridge because in Israel, uh, in the, the, the century before Christ and at the time of Christ, the Anuim gradually came to have uh, spiritual overtones. They were still economically poor, for sure. But this word meant to have a humble dependence and a, a closeness to God. Zephaniah 3.12 is uh, a wonderful promise from the Lord. For I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. It's interesting. Part of God's promise is the poor. I'm going to leave them among you because you need them. So we've got to hold on to, uh, to the tie between the economic and the spiritual, the dynamic tension. You know, John Calvin said this, He who is reduced to nothing in himself and therefore relies on the mercy of God is the poor in spirit. 
The poor in spirit understand and feel deep down that they are nothing in themselves. They're only something because they're loved by God. I was reading um, Jesus' message to the Laodicean church uh, in Revelation um, 3.17. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Clearly, they fell off on one side. And this is, I saw this and immediately thought of the parable Jesus told in, um, in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. Hello, good. In case anybody's still watching, they're trying to fix something and we'll go back at it in a minute. Do you have any idea how far I got? Okay, I'm broadcasting. All right, thank you. I was just told to stop, and now I'm being told to start. Isn't it great when you do a new technology? But it's super. So what I was saying is, in contrast to the Laodicean church, I thought of the parable in Luke 18 that Jesus told, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he, he obviously had wealth, but he had spiritual poverty. He was broken. And he stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I told you that I've been studying the church fathers a lot. And again, as I go into the Beatitudes, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. I'm reading stuff that's been published in the last three years and stuff that was written in the second century. One of the interesting things about the church fathers is a couple of things. The first is this, their emphasis on humility. Um, they focused much more to, to, uh, to speak on the opposite. The early church and the church fathers focused so much more on pride. I don't know if I can even remember hearing a, a sermon on pride. I don't know if I've ever given a sermon on pride. But but the early church and the church fathers focused a lot on uh, pride and therefore on humility. They saw poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit, in terms of this issue of humility or pride. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, Gregory of Nyssa had much to say um, about this beatitude. He said, if we're, if, we're to, if we're to follow Christ's path, and, and the one we're following is the one who, though he was rich, he became poor, 2 Corinthians 9.8. You're following the one who decided to turn away from richness and become poor. So again, we see the connection between economic and spiritual. Humility was the church father's main interpretation of poor in spirit. And I, I became aware of that over the last few months. And frankly, it has affected my prayer life. It has just affected my times of contemplation. So let me say that again. For the church fathers and the early church, humility was the main interpretation of poor in spirit. Now, humility is not modesty. It's not all shucks. That was nothing. It is way, way deeper, way more all-encompassing. Humility, according to the church fathers, requires great effort. Why? Because pride, they say, is the most pervasive and subtle of all sins, and therefore the most destructive. When Gregory interpreted Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. He said that pride is the tares sown by the evil one in all our lives. And that no other evil is so harmful to our nature. It is because pride is so ingrained into our nature that Jesus begins with this beatitude, blessed are the poor, in spirit. 
I'll say it again. The Beatitudes are Jesus' biography. And they're the first rung as he leads us up. This ladder that really points the way to following him. So Jesus counsels all who would seek to be poor in spirit to follow him. He emptied himself of everything. I have spoken many times on kenosis. Um, last week, we did a podcast with our dear friend Brad Jerzak, uh, and there will be another one next week. Uh, and we talked again about kenosis. He taught me a lot about this probably eight or nine years ago. But for Jesus emptying himself, it wasn't just happenstance. It was a choice he made. He chose to be poor. There is spiritual power, the church fathers tell us consistently, released when we make that same choice to empty ourselves. The classic passage is Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the kenosis. And this is the standard. That kenosis means emptying, and he emptied himself. He didn't grasp. He emptied. This passage, which, by the way, was a hymn in the early church, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, if you didn't hear that before, this is the standard by which to measure our voluntary poverty. Another church father, Hillary, who, by the way, was a man, but Hillary said, the Lord taught by example that the glory of human ambition must be left behind. When he said to us, the Lord your God shall you adore and uh, him only shall you serve. And when he announced through the prophets that he would choose a people humble and in awe of his words, he introduced the perfect beatitude as humility of spirit. That's quoting Hillary. Give you one more church father, Jerome, the one who translated the Bible into Latin. He shall save the humble in spirit. But do not imagine that poverty is bred by necessity, for he added in spirit so you would understand blessedness to be humility, not poverty. Again, the seriousness of pride that the church fathers warned against. Um, even as the road to hell, another church father, even as the road to hell is lined with all the vices and especially pride, all the virtues lead toward the kingdom of heaven and especially humility. This has been, I'm just telling you, this has been a huge area for me of prayer and contemplation and just consideration of humility that is so far beyond being modest and all shucks out was nothing. It's, it's tied directly in, and I agree with these church fathers, it, it best describes poor in spirit. And then, the last part of this beatitude, Jesus says, for theirs, the poor in spirit, the destitute in spirit, the humble, <coughs> excuse me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good news of this beatitude is that the kingdom comes in the midst of our spiritual poverty. It is for the spiritually poor that the kingdom exists. Let me give you a couple of great, great verses on on humility and, and brokenness that I have loved for years and years. The first is Isaiah 57, 15. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. The, uh, the message, Eugene Peterson's version of Psalm 51, 17, I learned God worship when my pride was shattered, heart-shattered lives, ready for love, don't for a moment escape God's notice. Aren't those good? Isaiah 57 and Psalm 51. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the present tense. The following six Beatitudes uh, are all in the future tense. For Matthew, the promises of the kingdom are in the future, but, uh, but the joy about them is in the present. And for the 
poor in spirit, is expresses the present confidence in future joy. Um, in the kingdom, there will be a complete reversal of the present state of affairs. But more than this, those whose treasure is the kingdom are already in the kingdom. I want you to hear that. That's why I insist he's, he's in you. He's in me and I'm in him. John 14, 20. He, let that become even part of your prayer life, part of your time. You're in me and I'm in you. And, and so with that is this, it's the great treasure. Uh, it's it's uh, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of God is like a man who discovered a treasure in the field. And over the joy of his discovery, he sold everything because he knew that blessedness was God's greatest gift. You know, um, the apostle John didn't use hardly ever the term the kingdom. He used a parallel term meant the same thing, eternal life. He said it again and again. And his equivalent of this is uh, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that you might know. This is eternal life. See, the kingdom has not fully come, but it has come. It has come. Kingdom is in our midst. Wherever, it, it, and do you all understand what I'm saying to that? If I had a living room full of people, we could interact on it. But yes, the kingdom has come, but it's still coming. It's still increasing. But as it increases, it comes with signs. And yes, the kingdom comes when we pray for a little child and their fever instantly leaves. Or I had a wonderful experience three, four weeks ago. I prayed over the phone for a little girl with a terminal tumor, inoperable. And, and Jesus, in his wonderful mercy, I haven't gotten over this. This was three weeks ago, I think. Um, I got the phone call that they can't find anything. Yes, of course, the kingdom has come then. But also, in light of the Beatitudes, the kingdom is in our midst whenever one person forgives another. Where, wherever there is mercy one to another, when we refuse to destroy or punish and have enough trust in God to leave punishment up to Him, the kingdom exists wherever we choose to see the image of God in others. And I talked about that a few weeks ago in Dale. No matter what their lives are like, when we choose to see the image of God in them, the kingdom advances. We must notice that Jesus' Beatitudes bless people not because of their virtues, but because of their inadequacies. This keeps us centered and focused on the great grace of Jesus Christ. The Beatitudes are not teaching us how to be blessed. In fact, they're not instructions of to, to do anything. Rather, they are a declaration of God's ultimate reality. They're an invitation to enjoy what is already ours, which is blessing. So let me wrap this up. As this first Beatitude begins to take hold of us. And I say begins because I think it's a lifelong process, certainly for me. But as it begins to take hold of us, this beatitude brings with it freedom. Freedom from our false self. The false self that's always trying to justify uh, our, uh, our values, even justify our existence, justify the false self, always has to look as good as possible. This beatitude frees us to simply be. Yet in that being, it brings with a hunger for more of Christ. That hunger grows. To know him more, to be increasingly immersed in our deep and experiential knowledge of our beautiful one. Following Jesus on this journey, as the church fathers called it this ladder, as we do that, we discover it is not a ladder of achievement. It's not a ladder of merit. It's not stages, oh, well, I'm up to stage three. It's nothing like that. Rather, it's 
it's one of unfolding, of bit by bit discovering the beauty of Christ in me and around me, and, and that I'm my beloved's and he is mine. As we lose our false self, and I think that's very much at the heart of this beatitude, ever so slowly and haltingly we lose it. We find our true self, the self that was made for Christ for all eternity. That's why he said again and again, if you will just lose your life, your false self life, your self-ego life, if you will lose your life, you will find it. Life everlasting. He said it, I'll say it again, this is eternal life, that you might know him. So let me finish this segment with part of today's reading for me, which was from the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, 10 to 13. I think this is, this being poor in spirit, this being humble, this being open, this all of these things that I shared draws us into the inviting Christ, who says, my lover said to me, Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come, and the cooing of turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit, and the fragrant grape pines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. This this is at the heart of this. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If you've got any questions for us to discuss in a future episode, or if you just want to say hi, send us an email at podcast at impactnations.com. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, spend some time reading about some of the amazing people who are thriving as a result of our skills and business programs at impactnations.com slash skills. Thanks and have a great week.